fine. Okay, perfectly fine. Fine. Okay, fine. 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 You're listening to Everything is Fine in Southwest Washington, a political podcast where we recognize that everything is not at all fine and discuss what we can do about it. I'm Carissa. And I'm Sydney. All right. Hello, everybody. Today we are talking about addiction, so we're not going to have our traditional call to action at the end of the episode. Rather, we hope you walk away with more knowledge that can help you navigate your own life and potential addictive behaviors, relationships with people who are struggling with addiction, the process of recovery, and knowledge of the resources available to us here in Vancouver. Furthermore, addiction is so very closely related to mental health, and it's hard for those of us who care about the world deeply to face our daily reality and fully accept the heaviness of what this moment in human history asks of us. While we struggle through these often depressing and isolating times, although I argue they are a whole lot less depressing when you're engaged in activism and community, our capitalist overlords are waiting in the wings to foist upon us culturally acceptable addictions, such as alcohol, nicotine, caffeine, the American diet, social media, phones, retail therapy, the hustle, hoarding, toxic and superficial romantic relationships, gambling, whether at the casino or with crypto and pornography. We may also find ourselves addicted to more socially stigmatized drugs like prescription medications or illicit substances. Johan Hari, whose book Chasing the Scream was revolutionary in changing the way we understand addiction, demonstrated how environmental factors that are often a result of systemic failure, by the way, had mistakenly taken a backseat to genetics and the chemical component of a drug in explaining why a person becomes addicted and stays addicted. Hari concluded that the opposite of addiction is connection and your community is here for you when you are ready to connect. We hope this episode assists you in a little introspection so that you can take care of yourself because we need you, our community needs you, and the world needs you. Okay, on with the show. Our guest today is Sarah Schmidt. She is a returning guest. Um, She has an MA in behavioral health and is a credentialed Washington State Substance Use Disorder Counselor. Schmidt has worked for two years at one of the most popular substance use treatment centers in the Vancouver, Portland area, and is here to discuss the treatment process, local resources, myths about recovery, and the truth about our brains. Hello, Sarah. Hello. It's (laughs) nice to be back. Thanks for having me back. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So we're talking about mostly addiction today, right? Yes. Um, Yeah, I am so glad to be here and um, just tying in with some past episodes. uh, I think that when you had Ashley on talking about houselessness, um, definitely related to our substance use problem here in Mm -hmm. in Southwest Washington. Um, But it's also an individual and societal problem, obviously, on a more macro level. So I was hoping we'd talk about that today. But I really want to start off with uh, an awesome message of hope because getting sober and changing your life is totally possible and changing your life and not getting sober is totally possible. There are many things that you can do and sometimes we get stuck in a rut and we forget that we can change. And that's kind of um, where I want to come at this too is individual societal let's go. Let's talk about addiction. Oh, and also the message of hope is People get sober every day. It's totally possible. Uh, People relapse every day. People overdose every day. People use every day. Um, So it's kind of where do you want to be? Where do you see yourself? And how can you help other people? You know, you can help other people just by being open to policy change. You can help other people just by offering a smile to someone who looks like they're having a shitty day. They won't always attack you and bite you if you smile at them. Um, so sometimes it's just about the little things and also being open. Um, okay. Well, I did, I did want to ask you too, like, okay. So, you know, humans in our history, like have used psycho, psychoactive substances. Right. So it's like, so like, is, is just using a substance, like where, where does it turn into an addiction? Like what, um, how would you define that? I guess like, because there's people probably out there that are like, okay, I, you know, I smoke weed every night or something or, um, every once in a while, or I have a couple drinks, uh, twice a week or something like that. And, um, they don't see that as an addiction or, um, yeah, just like where, where do you feel like, or where? Yeah. I think, I think with the brain, well, I always like to go back to the science because people don't believe In addiction science, I think that's where we should kind of start is that those brain changes 
happen. You can see them in an MRI. So before before we had MRIs, people would usually just blame the addict and they still do. And people like to dismiss the science and the research that we actually have about addiction. Um, psychology always gets shit on. And there is so many bad psychological research out there, right? And we're always seeing these headlines and pop psychology and everything. Um, so it's really important to remember like research hierarchy, right? A case study is like the lowest form of research, right? We're looking for a meta-analysis, a comparative data for multiple cross-studies. And we have those in psychology, but still people want to dismiss things and, and say we make it up, um, which you can find studies to prove just about anything, yes, but there is a science to this. Um, okay. and, and so part of that is like reducing the stigma around it. Um, well, I lost track of the original. Oh, when does it start yeah, to be the, addiction? How do you see it in the brain? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when we see that, that hijacking of the brain's reward system, um, really was it like, that's, that's the old brain, our primitive brain. So very basic brain science. Cause I'm in by no means a neuroscientist. Oh my gosh. I wish I was jealous of that. Um, amazing <laughs> and fascinating field, but we go back to our old brain. So that's the primitive brain, the amygdala that that goes with our emotions. That's our emotion center. Um, so like when we're adolescents, it's all about the amygdala. And then as as we develop, we have that prefrontal cortex. That's that's our reasoning zone. And so when we get to the point of addiction, addiction to a substance, a behavior, what have you, you have let this singular thing hijack your reward system. And now through a series of behaviors, you're dependent on it. So the behaviors that go along with addiction. So say that I was addicted to biting my nails. Ooh, ah, you know, like that, that's also a symptom of anxiety and something else, but it, it's releasing a dopamine for me. Okay. For some reason, through some experiences I've had, this action is giving me dopamine. Similar when you look at your phone, you, oh, a notification, it might be something good. And then you get those dopamine hits then then that's that's your brain being trained to look to that for dopamine instead of food or sex or water and so when we get to that point where our brain's been hijacked by that behavior there there we go um can i oh this is a good segue for my dopamine soundbite can i play it do it let's do it yeah because dopamine since we're talking about addiction is a huge part of this so this this is a soundbite from one of my favorite videos I like to show in treatment group to really understand what happens when we're when our brain's been hijacked um, by addiction and we have no dopamine. Um, I think in a past episode that that I was on here, we talked about depression and no motivation. Like, why would I want to start exercising? Why would I want to ride your bike? Philip was saying that, like, well, when I'm depressed, I don't even want to get out of bed. Um, and, and we can actually measure your motivation to want to get out of bed. So let me hold on. So anytime you do what you're saying is anytime you do, you do like drugs or alcohol or you exercise or have sex, dopamine is released. But the difference between those normal dopamine responses and addiction is that those things no longer give you that dopamine hit, whereas only the thing you're addicted to does. Is that the delineation? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And then okay. and that's kind of what that soundbite is going to go over. Um, okay, cool. So this Yeah, he's going to talk about that how after your levels get raised to a certain point, after that simple things that used to give you dopamine, just like pale in comparison. So let me just sound on a normal day, we even know how much dopamine we're supposed to have. So on Monday morning, when I wake up and I work, I live in the range of about 50 nanograms per deciliter of dopamine. That sits in the central part of my brain and that's required for me to get out of bed and go get that first cup of coffee. Now, what about the worst day, the really bad day? The day you, you know, you call your office and you fake vomit in the phone and you decide not to go in. You're like, I just can't make it. That's about 40 nanograms per deciliter. So not much lower, but low enough to where you just want to sit around in your pajamas all day and do nothing. What about the best day ever? You know, the day where all at once you win the lottery, you have 2% body fat, and you're living on the beach. All of those things happen at the exact same time. We even know that one. That's 100 nanograms per deciliter. Our brain is meant to go all the way to there. It's not really meant to go above. 
And we can look at things like your favorite food, which is like 94 nanograms per deciliter. And sex, 92 nanograms per deciliter. Bummer, right? Couldn't have predicted that. Maybe they need to redo that research. But at the same time, we know that we're supposed to live within this relative normal state between 40 on a horrible day and 100 on our best day. So what happens when we add a chemical into the brain like methamphetamine? This chemical is really important because it pushes us way past that 100 nanograms per deciliter. In fact, it actually pushes up to 1,100 nanograms per deciliter, more than 10 times the amount of dopamine that our brain should be making. And then if we look at things like marijuana or alcohol or heroin, these are things that push it up into the high hundreds. This is not what we're supposed to be doing. As we look at this, we have the normal that we're supposed to be. We have this large jump for something like methamphetamine. And then we have these other drugs that drive that dopamine up. And when that happens, it starts to take over that part of the brain. And no longer does going to your child's birthday make you happy. It's not happening. The things that normally make us feel happy start to pale in comparison. This is because the brain is built to survive. Yeah. What do you guys really think about that? The fact that we can measure our own motivation, like in our brains, like that blows my mind. That's really cool. I, I honestly didn't really know that we had that, that data. That's crazy. Yeah. It's amazing. I think it's amazing. And I, that's one of the reasons that I like this, uh, this field so much because it's like fascinating. It's like, I, I guess, because in my mind, <laughs> in my brain, I feel like we can literally just look into our brains and be able to tell our personality types, which we almost can with the amount of like neurotransmitters and everything. So I don't know. I mean, the brain is more complex than that, right? We always want to think of it like a computer where we could just feed data points into it. And so much more happens um, than that. But mostly they always try to compare it to a computer because it is like the, the neurotransmitters that we have and how they communicate with each other that defines how we interpret everything. Um, sorry if I'm getting like annoyingly philosophical, but <laughs> no, that's really cool. <laughs> it's crazy. So if that's how we define addiction, it's this, you know, uh, like almost logarithmic, it seems like dopamine response as compared to natural things. And I've, like we talked about earlier, like the difference between when you're addicted to something and just can enjoy a drink after work or a little bit of weed a couple nights a week or whatever, it's just that you don't, you still get pleasure from other things. So that's addiction. So how does then, what does that look like? Like if you are personally feeling like you're addicted and, or we see our large houseless population that is often considered like this large swath of people are addicted. Even people, people that are using are essentially just trying to feel better. Right. Yeah, absolutely. If you're in your home after work or you're trying to, like we talked about with Ashley, like trying to kind of forget that your surroundings are terrible and dangerous. Yeah. Um, Cause so a lot way, of houseless things, people do use because they're houseless. Yeah. Like some people, Oh, I have to stay up all night to protect myself. Right. Yeah. Like, or and I can't afford food anyway, or I feel so terrible that yeah. there's, this is all in my face. Of course, I'm going to start using, yeah, that there's happens nothing a else lot. to provide them that dopamine because yeah. of all the environmental yeah. factors they're having to deal with that. And yeah, like, that makes a lot of sense. And if you're not houseless, right. Like you're living in kind of a capitalist hellscape and you're detached from your labor and it's this like whole dialectical materialism, you know, philosophy that I subscribe to, but where you just kind of in the grind all the time. Right. So again, yeah. like you might not be houseless, but you're still kind of escaping. You're um, still seeking dopamine. And that was yeah. a, I'm glad you brought that up. Cause I was thinking about your last episode um, where you talked about healthcare decisions and mental health care and, and the way that we treat mental health care in our society, which is a huge thing to unpack. But I don't think that a lot of people know how much uh, insurance has a say in your mental health care and the way that your treatment goes. Um, so, for example, like say that you were coming into treatment with private insurance, it might actually take you longer to get a bed because first your clinician, a clinician, not just somebody that has like a, a clerk's license or whatever, but an actual clinician will have to call your insurance and tell them your personal mental health details so that 
you can actually get approval for this mental health treatment. Like I would have to justify your treatment course so that we could get paid for it. Whereas like if you had state insurance, oh, we already know. We already know they're going to pay for it. I don't have to justify it. We're straight up. We don't have to wait even longer to get the bed that is already going to take a long time to get a bed because there's not enough. Um, and people are surprised by that or say that you get a DUI and they're like, okay, well, you got to do the assessment. They recommend treatment. So you go do the treatment. And then they're like, well, I got my DUI in Oregon. I have to go to treatment in Washington because my insurance says so. Oh, sorry. Well, it's going to be a little longer for you. You're going to have to end up paying more. Yeah. And, and so that's a lot of stuff people don't realize, like how much control or what their private insurance determines, or sometimes they'll be like, oh, well, we want the person, uh, we're not going to pay for it unless the person providing your treatment has a master's degree, which is kind of rare, right? A, a substance use counselor degree, you can get one, uh, a license with an associate's. So finding someone with a master's is a little bit more difficult if that's what Aetna wants. And then you have to go, well, crap, well, now I have to search around for a different place, waiting even longer for a mental health care. And then what's even the point in, in that like requirement is, is it just, it seems to me that that's just a reason for them to deny you care. Well, and that's insurance companies exist to deny you care because the profit is in the denial. (laughs) <laughs> which is where single single payer healthcare is eliminates that profit motive and therefore makes healthcare mental health care way more accessible because the profit motive is in denying you care. They pay for yeah. care, shit. That's money they're losing. You know? And then with mental health and substance use, uh, it's like the rule, not the exception. So historically, which they're getting away from now, they would always separate those cares. Oh, alcoholic, go do your alcohol treatment. And then we'll talk about your bipolar later or go do your, you know, and now we know those things are sometimes synonymous or, you know, somebody just getting out of inpatient because of post-acute withdrawal syndrome, which I totally want to talk to you guys about in more detail, um, that they will get misdiagnosed because that's going to be the symptom of the withdrawal from the drug. And so it gets really nuanced and complicated Um, but luckily co-occurring programs are happening now. So that's kind of the approach is going more into those co-occurring programs. However, private insurance isn't moving as fast. So while the clinics are moving into that, let's have a full treatment team. You have your substance use person. They're communicating with the mental health person. We have your, you know, you have this team of people. Well, the insurance maybe doesn't want you to pay for it like that. So it's unfortunate that now we know that that's the best course of treatment, but we have private insurance and this isn't a dis. Well, obviously I'm not for it, but the people that work for the insurance and the mental health stuff, there's some really nice people that, that understand the brevity of the situation and move things along. Like um, blue cross blue shield is like so hard to get um, a, a, an approval for a treatment. Like it sucks so bad and you got to call and it's just like they have the worst hold music and um, <laughs> it's, they don't do retro authorizations a lot and, and which insurance companies, oh, you screwed up. It's over, right? There's no way you'll get that money ever. Um, so you have to be very careful along the way, but they're the people that do that. And, and that's kind of what you end up feeling like anyway, I think with like what you were saying before, like in our society right now with the values that we have and the priorities, working where I was working is you kind of just feel like, am I really doing something or am I just trying to be different in this world where it's okay to just, you know, push things along, especially in terms of the relationship between treatment and the criminal justice system. Um, So I had a lot, I did like DUI groups mainly. And so I'd have a lot of people that were forced to go to treatment because of their crime and didn't really think they had a problem, which is in and of itself, like the first step. And so, um, I can, sorry, what were we talking about originally? Oh, private insurance. I do, I just wanted to defend some of the people that work for private insurance. Cause well, yeah, I mean, you feel like, yeah, the bad guy, but yeah, we don't need to demonize the people that work in a fucked up system. You know what I mean? But yeah. Which is like all of us. So what is the state of treatment in Clark County? And if you say, feel like you might have an addiction, what are your options? Uh, yeah, that is such a fantastic question. And it's kind of going to be different for everybody based on the individual, like so completely. Um, but I just want to say like in Vancouver, we have a really 
diverse and awesome recovery community. And a lot of people, if they're not familiar with treatment, they go, oh, AA, that's it, right? The 12 steps. Oh, the 12 steps. Oh, I got to join church. Um, and, and for me, and and this has been a big thing because I grew up with like zero religious affiliation, like ever. Um, I've always been like an atheist. And so for me personally, like I was like, oh, I would never go in for that kind of stuff. And I think a lot of people may be turned off by that or feel like they're going to be controlled. And that's also a barrier. You know, people will will take one little negative piece of information and just run with it to feed their addict brain and keep doing what they want to do. And so I just I would want anybody listening to know that in Vancouver, it would be very hard to not find a recovery community that you can go with. So there's AA, there's traditional AA. Um, and then there's also like refuge recovery, which is also known as recovery Dharma. And so that takes a lot of Buddhist principles and applies that to 12 step thinking. Um, so it's more of a discovery of self and, and also with, with drug treatment and mental health treatment, a good intervention. And just, if you want to think of it as like a side activity is meditation. It's so good for your brain. And I feel so guilty saying this right now because I feel like I'm like this amateur meditator, but just trying even every day to, to start thinking about meditating. Like that's where it's kind of at with, with any mental health. Um, And it reminds me of this, like they say thinking too much about the future causes anxiety worrying too much about the past causes depression. We have to stay in the moment. Um, and that goes back to like mindfulness. So that's really where that refuge recovery is. Um, and then the mindfulness goes back to, um, rumination. So let's, let's go way back. Sorry to brain science. So rumination is when we have a negative thought over and over again, we're ruminating on it. So say, say I gained like 10 pounds last month and I'm just like beat myself about, Oh, I'm fat as fuck. Oh my God. I gained 10 pounds. And every second thought I might be going throughout the day, doing my thing. And then I'm like, God, but you gained that 10 pounds, you bastard, you piece of shit. Oh my God. That's ruminating. You know, that's needless, unnecessary. Oh my God. Beating up with the self. And that hits a particular part in our brain. So if I was doing that and I was under the MRI and call myself a fat ass and hate myself, you could see that part of my brain light up. And that's the same part that has my life's narrative. So where my identity, my truth about myself, my autobiography is stuck in that part of my brain that lights up when I ruminate. Oh God, why? What the hell brain? But it's true. And so when we want to not be ruminating, we have to do something apart from the self. And so that's a part of dealing with triggers too, is that we have to distract ourselves, find a new fucking activity, be curious, get out of your head because you're lighting up that part of the brain and it gets stronger because the brain is plastic. And because the brain is plastic, it's not like this weird Rubbermaid Tupperware thing. When we say the brain is plastic, we mean it's moldable, (laughs) moldable, (laughs) sorry. (laughs) And so that means that the very structure of it changes our thoughts can change the structure of our brain. And this is huge in understanding that, yes, you can overcome addiction. Yes, you fucking can. Yes, you fucking can. Yes, you fucking can. Because people are, oh, not me. I'm special. And that's a huge part of addictive thinking. Is forever. Yeah. Yes. Uh, everybody else, but, you know, it's my grandpa and it's me and it's, okay, shut up. Right? <laughs> Just shut the fuck up. Yes, you can. And, and that's something people need to remember because we want to, we want to believe that we're special and that we can't be cured because we're rock stars or whatever. Uh, so neuroplasticity, why are we plastic? Get ready for this voice. Okay, here we go. Okay. <laughs> it's all good. Not so long ago, many scientists believe that the brain did not change after childhood, that it was hardwired and fixed by the time we became adults. But recent advances in only the last decade now tell us that this is simply not true. The brain can and does change throughout our lives. It is adaptable, like plastic. Hence neuroscientists call this neuroplasticity. How does neuroplasticity work? If you think of your brain as a dynamic, connected power grid, 
There are billions of pathways or roads lighting up every time you think, feel or do something. Some of these roads are well-travelled. These are our habits, our established ways of thinking, feeling and doing. Every time we think in a certain way, practice a particular task or feel a specific emotion, we strengthen this road. It becomes easier for our brains to travel this pathway. Say we think about something differently, learn a new task or choose a different emotion. We start carving out a new road. If we keep travelling that road, our brains begin to use this pathway more and this new way of thinking, feeling or doing becomes second nature. The old pathway gets used less and less and weakens. This process of rewiring your brain by forming new connections and weakening old ones is neuroplasticity in action. The good news is that we all have the ability to learn and change by rewiring our brains. If you have ever changed a bad habit or thought about something differently, you have carved a new pathway in your brain and experienced neuroplasticity firsthand. With repeated and directed attention towards your desired change, you can rewire your brain. That's amazing. Like just, I don't know, that's just so empowering because I think people like, I think people do believe that they are incapable in, of change. You know what I mean? Like there's some that are just making excuses and just want to continue the behavior. But I think that a lot of people really feel like they are trapped um, in, in the way that they are and yeah. that there's just no hope for them, you know? So to like, that's tragedy see that and acknowledge that it's like, Oh my God, I could change. I don't have to be like this. Like I, you know, and odds are you probably already have, you know, and any time that we've done changed our lifestyle or changed a behavior, you've changed that structure. And that even goes with like thoughts. So when we think about um, people, you could relate this to like election anxiety or, or anything like that, where people are always have that second thought in their mind where they're always blaming, Oh, Obama, you know, like that's always their second thought of like blaming somebody else. That's the well-traveled road in their brain that has an actual structure. Um, it's just like, it's really interesting. And then there's the negative bias too, that, so we have all these cognitive biases. So we have that. Um, and then we have a negativity bias where we hold on to what's negative. Um, and, and that's because like our primitive, our old brain, we think in terms of like carrots and sticks. So we have the carrots, the reward, the stick is the punishment. So Back when we were in prehistoric times as cave people or whatever, um, we we had more to lose if we ignored negative information. And so we really care about negative information. It, positive information. Oh, yeah, something could happen. Cool. Wait, you know, there's a saber tooth tiger that's going to kill me. And so we hold on to that uh, negative information more. And so we actually have to use mindfulness to build positivity. We have to create those roads and strengthen them stronger in our, in our minds to be more positive people, um, which is a huge skill to develop. Positivity I mean, is, it's a developed skill. I think that's the basic principles behind, right? The idea of a gratitude journal, which has gotten so popular lately. There's apps, there's whatever, where you just like reflect on your day, like five good things that happened, three good things in your day. Like if you're depressed, you're rewiring your brain to see the positive. Um, so I think that's something people can relate to that we're seeing all over, like online, social media, you can buy a gratitude journal at Target or whatever. Yeah. Um, but that actually has a scientific purpose and that's part of it. Gratitude. Right? Yes, that's huge. And then you can just lay in your bed at night and say three things you're grateful yeah. for. Absolutely. Exactly. Uh, so I'm going to go back to my original question because I think it's important for people to know. Let's say you have an addiction. You're here in Clark. County, oh, yes. Like, What's the process? Yeah. Maybe I'm drinking a little too much. What can mm -hmm. I do? Okay, what are so options there for me? say that let's do two hypothetical people. Let's do someone that's forced to by the criminal justice system to seek treatment. And then let's do somebody that wants to seek treatment on their own. So let's start with hypothetical person and you're drinking it. You want to do alcohol for the, the person that's yeah, let's yeah. So we got this person, they're drinking too much. It's starting to affect their life to the point where somebody said something, hey, maybe a spouse is like, you need to get treatment or you're out or they've been given some kind of ultimatum. Because when we find, you know, no, 
the the idea of rock bottom is an idea. It's bullshit. You know, you don't have to hit rock bottom. That's going to be different for everybody. And you can be amazed at how far you can fall. So don't wait to hit this rock bottom. That's a myth. Um, but there is going to be an instigating event of some sorts. Maybe you got so shit faced, you embarrassed yourself really bad, right? That's the instigating event. Maybe you got in a car accident. That's the instigating event. Um, so there's always going to kind of be this kind of tipping point event that gets peeled away. Um, and, and for those of us that have struggled with addiction, there's a lot of events, you know, and, and relapse is part of the process. Um, but yes, yeah, so you've had this event somebody wants you to get treatment. So the first thing you're going to do is you need an assessment. So what an assessment is, is an evaluation. You go, you meet with a treatment counselor. Uh, they need to have at least a trainee credential or, uh, and, and then that the person that has the trainee credential, if, if they do an assessment, they do have to get approval from a supervisor that has the actual license before you move forward. So even if you have somebody that's a trainee, like it still counts, it's still it's still gonna be reviewed. So you get this evaluation. Uh, the evaluation is gonna touch on six different factors. So the first one is withdrawal. And the questions throughout are gonna basically sum this up for the evaluator, the person doing the assessment. Um, so the first one is the level of withdrawal intoxication. Sometimes with alcohol, People don't realize that withdrawal from alcohol can be extremely dangerous, and they don't realize that their level is high enough to make it that way. And it's really determined by your own personal brain, which sucks um, because we can't always tell. And it can be dangerous to withdraw from alcohol. And so it's important to be honest in the assessment and, and really tell about how much you're drinking. Always important to be honest in the assessment, right? Um, but don't give yourself anxiety over it. If you've had some kind of traumatic event, um, don't relive it in your assessment. You know, just just kind of address it because you don't want to impact something that you're never going to get through the assessment. You're just going to traumatize yourself. So kind of be aware of that. Um, but yeah, be honest about your use because that's going to determine whether you need to actually go to detox. So not everybody that goes into treatment has to go to detox first. Um, in fact, a lot of people don't. You can always uh, start inpatient treatment without going to detox, but it's really important, especially with alcohol, to consider that. Um, so that that's one of the factors that goes into an assessment. Another one is like your biomedical needs. Are you, uh, do you have a broken leg? Is your leg broken? You need to do inpatient. That's something we're going to need to think about. Um, and then there's like mental health. So do you have a mental health diagnosis? Are you taking any med mental health medications? Uh, there's also the, the motivation to change. So that's where's this person's actual motivation lie. So I could be talking to you in the assessment and you're kind of like, uh, you know, I don't think my use is that bad. I think maybe I just need to take a break and, and the people around me are maybe just overreacting because of other stuff. And I'm like, mm, maybe you're not as motivated as I think you are or you think you are. So that might require, you know, more treatment, a higher level of treatment. Um, and then there's also relapse potential. Is this your first rodeo? How many times have you done treatment? Are you kind of numb to some of the things that have already happened to you at treatment before? And then there's your recovery environment. Um, so that's how supportive are the people in your life. And believe it or not, so that kind of goes back to houseless people who suffer from addiction. So a lot of times if someone's homeless, they might um, make their addiction worse than it is so that they can get a spot in the inpatient. Um, and, and so that's something I, I know that sounds horrifying when I'm saying that statement, because you would think, well, of course, get them off the street. How are they ever going to get sober without that? But where I worked at before and kind of the rule is just because they're homeless doesn't mean they get impatient, doesn't mean they need impatient. And that was always a really hard concept for me personally to wrap my mind around. Um, so we did have and, and I'll go back to the different levels of care. So so you have this assessment. And this person's assessing that they're using those six different kind of things. And then they come up with a recommendation. Um, and this recommendation is like a prescription. So you can get your assessment at one. So say you went to a treatment center, you got an assessment. You're like, ah, this might be the treatment center. I like you get the assessment. You're okay with the outcome. They rec what they recommended, but you hated it. You're like, this place sucks ass. I don't want to go here. You can take that recommendation and go to another treatment center because it's like a prescription and ideally use that there. 
Um, so, so that's something to consider. It's kind of like a legal document too. Uh, so sometimes people, we have this other hypothetical person that's an addict that got a DUI and they're required to get an assessment. Um, so that would count for that. <laughs> Sorry, I've been talking forever. And so the, the next level of care, um, so there's inpatient. So I might say, oh, you need inpatient. Let's recommend you for this. What are the next steps? And then there's intensive outpatient. So that's at least nine hours a week of outpatient treatment. Right now, because of the pandemic, a lot of it's online or they've had some open in person, but it's at least nine hours a week. And if you get a DUI, you will most likely, if you do deferred prosecution, be required intensive outpatient. So it's IOP. There's all these um, insane amount of acronyms in every profession, but this one is like mental health is ridiculous. CBT, REBT, DBT, it's like horrifying. Um, but this is IOP, intensive outpatient. And then there's another level of care, which is regular outpatient. And that's usually, that's under nine hours. It could be twice a week. It could be once a week for an hour. Um, and this is also something that you might be recommended for. Say you just came out of jail. Say you're going to be released from prison. Your PO's like, okay, I want you to get an assessment because you're here because of a meth charge. And even though you haven't used in three years, I'm doing the assessment. I'm like, yeah, bro, you need to do outpatient for at least a week for your first 12 weeks out. Um, and that, that would be like a recommendation because people, even though they've been sober for a while, they've been sober in an institution. And so that kind of goes back to like, when we talk about being institutionalized is like the only way that you know how to be sober is in an institution. Once you leave the institution, you don't have those skills in your life. That's why I personally think outpatient is like really important um, because in that inpatient environment, you know, it's great. And some people are always like, oh, I think I just need a few days away. And they think of it like a spa. Um, but it's not like that, first of all. You do have to do some hard work. Yes, please rest up. Absolutely. Relax. That's what you're learning how to do. Um, but recovery is uncomfortable and, and you can't get around it. You're going to be uncomfortable. Um, it's not a spa environment. And then I, I think it's sometimes better. People assume that they need inpatient. Like I said, they want this little vacation. Sometimes it's better to get sober and maintain your sobriety outside of an institution, outside of that inpatient environment, because that's when you're going to need those skills the most. And so if you're developing them as you go, um, that's, that's super important. Sorry. I just need to have a drink of water, <clears throat> but okay. So you got your assessment, you, you did the thing, you got the recommendation. Um, so one of those levels of care were recommended you're ready to do treatment. So while you're in treatment, and this is independent of treatment, you're gonna need some homies because right now you don't wanna hang out with the people that you've been hanging out with. The people you've been spending time with, you know, you might have some supportive friends. I'm sure you do. Maybe they're the reason that you're going, um, but they're probably part of this lifestyle that you're trying to change. Um, obviously you don't have to get rid of all your friends, but you'll notice who's gonna stick around and who was your friend and who's not like that's just going to kind of happen organically um but you need some recovery friends because isolation is a killer um it's a killer of people in recovery we isolate we hate each other we hate being around other people we think we're special we think and so and and when you're when you're going through pause which we'll talk about in a second post-acute withdrawal syndrome it, it's the stage after acute withdrawal so 30 days after most things, most substances, you're going to have mostly the physical stuff coming at you. Oh, I feel like shit. My sleep's weird. Blah. You know, and, and that stuff's going on. And then, and this is where most people relapse because they don't know what the fuck it is. And they don't realize it when it's happening is you'll go through post-acute withdrawal syndrome. If I'm somebody who thinks I might drink too much, like, like specifically, where do I go? What can I, you know, if somebody yeah. who knows nothing. Yeah. As so you would go there. to the treatment center, you would do the assessment and then they would recommend you for so, a course of treatment. So, so if I'm you were thinking, like, where are those treatment centers in Clark County? Cause Oh yeah, they're Clark everywhere. Um, so we have like the main one, right? There's Lifeline. The uh, yeah. And it's, they're yeah. so easy to find online. You could type in treatment centers local, but you do need, need to pay attention to your insurance. So we talked about that earlier. 
um, that your insurance is largely going to determine where you can go. So that's something that you really want to check with first because you don't want to get stuck in a situation where you say that you really like the person that gave you the assessment and you're like, oh, I want to do my treatment here. And then they're and it says no. And so you kind of oh. want to follow those. So you don't have any crazy bills. Um, what if, if you're uninsured? If you are uninsured, then you can pay out of pocket. There are also programs that you can get um, discounted for at the clinics themselves. Uh, sometimes there's something in place like a, a funding stream where people get things paid for, uh, which they'll really try to work with you at the clinic. But yeah, it sucks ass if you're uninsured. Uh, fortunately, oh, and there's like stuff like COBRA. And then yeah. there's something else specific to mental health treatment. I can't remember the name right now, but it's it's like COBRA. And then it makes the payout of pocket, so to speak, like cheaper. But yeah, it really sucks if you're uninsured. Um, what if you're not sure you're addicted and you're just like, somebody said something, but like, like the idea of popping into like an AA meeting, you know, 20 years ago or whatever, like just to see if maybe like, cause the idea of going into a yeah. treatment center is pretty intimidating. It's like, I've made this decision where maybe I don't know. Yeah. So that's what I wanted to get to. So you're in that decision, but let's get back to post-acute withdrawal syndrome. And the isolation thing, because I was just about to get to that, because I want to talk about sober support groups, um, because you're right. It's not just about treatment. And the thing with the isolation is you're going to need to find that community. So when we talked before about like recovery Dharma, there's AA, there's like smart recovery, which is like the atheist or non-religious affiliated version of like AA. So those are different sober support groups, and they usually need to be done with treatment. Because you're going to want something beyond your treatment and the people you meet in treatment. You're going to want that support in that community. And most of those meetings, you could just show up to. And in these show notes, I can show you, uh, we can have like a hyperlink for the directory in town here and all those local resources. And then there's also like a Vancouver, Washington, if you just did like a type substance use treatment. Um, so the major ones in Vancouver here. So at the VA campus, there's a Lifeline Connections, and then there's also a CMAR. And so a lot of people that have like state insurance, their insurance will direct them to either of those, or you could start there and continue there. Um, there's also like Affinity Counseling, there's Columbia River Mental Health. A big thing that we need to remember though, is you can go anywhere, but some of these places, if you're going for like a legal reason, a lot of them are like, purely religious affiliated and not approved by the state to do your DUI treatment. And so we have people in a situation where they've done like a whole course of what they thought was DUI treatment to satisfy their case. And it's, sorry, no, this was a religious institution that was just for that, you know, just for treatment. It doesn't, the state doesn't approve it. And so those are all kinds of things that you would need to consider um, before deciding where you're going for treatment. But if you were like not even ready to go to treatment and just like, I think I might have a problem. What's up? You know, like, do I, the best thing to do, the best thing to do is stop the thing that you're doing and see what the fuck happens. <laughs> stop what you're doing. Do I have a problem with this? Okay. Well, what am I going to do when it's not there? What, how do I act? How do I feel? And, and really be upfront about it. Um, because that's, that's the most important thing to do. And then what are those resources? Then that's, well, maybe I should get an assessment. Do I need treatment? How do I feel about this recovery community and these people that I just met from recovery Dharma and I've been doing my, my workouts and my meditation and, or do I need AA? Is this my first rodeo? Cause a lot of times people will be, uh, they might have a, a prior addiction. So you might, in, in your teens and 20s might be like, oh, I, I was a total cokehead. You know, I had a meth addiction. I went to treatment and then they go, well, meth was my problem. And then they kind of don't keep up with treatment and they lose track of, of those skills or whatever. And then they become an alcoholic and they're like, how did I become an alcoholic? I was supposed to be a meth addict. And so those are just really things to consider. Okay. Also like to touch, so, uh, not just psychoactive substances like are things you can be addicted to right like i think you already kind of touched on that like with the nail biting but so there's like other behaviors that you 
I think that's something where people might not realize they're addicted because they're like, oh, I'm not addicted to like drinking or smoking meth or whatever, Um, you know, but they but they actually are exhibiting addictive behaviors like um, what's a good what's a good one? I don't know. Like hoarding. Is that an addictive behavior? Yeah. I mean, anything that produces dopamine, you can anything become, that does that to your brain, like you were saying. Yeah. And, okay. and sometimes associated behaviors. Can you be so, addicted to a person? Yeah. You okay. can be addicted to a person. You could be addicted to new relationships. Can you and be so, addicted to toxic relationships? Like, yeah, dramatic, crazy relationships. OK. And, and when we're addicted to people. So, for example, every time that you form a new relationship or a new attraction, you have that extra oxytocin, the love, right. the love neurotransmitter. And so if you're the kind of person that's always starting a new relationship, you might be hooked on on that. The idea that that beginning part of the oxytocin. Um, so when we see people or are people who are experienced that, you know, that's part of that relationship but all of this is it, it it affects every part of our lives right um that's why it's the biopsychosocial so it could also be that you encourage this because it's cultural or because you think it's cool or it's part of your identity and then it gets caught in that cycle or there's like associated behaviors so say like every time i smoked a cigarette i looked at this like particular picture that was just like a generic ass picture of a happy face. And then I quit smoking. And then when I see that happy face, I'd be like, oh my gosh, you know, this reminds me of smoking or, you know, cause it's associated in my head. And so I right. might be vicariously addicted to this picture of a happy face because of the smoking. And so it gets like, our brains are crazy. Um, and that's why it's so important to have routine and treatment. So that kind of goes back to uh, the post-acute withdrawal syndrome, which I got to show you that. Okay, <laughs> The thing that makes people relapse is kind of a lack of knowledge about this post-acute withdrawal syndrome. So going back to that person that's, do I have a problem? Okay, so the person's like, do I have a problem? And they quit whatever they were questioning they had a problem with. The meth, the alcohol, the whatever, it did not go well. You know, they pissed a lot of people off. They felt like shit. Think, oh, I have a problem. Okay, I got a problem. They got the assessment. The assessment said, we want you to go inpatient. They did inpatient. Inpatient was great. They started, and what happens in inpatient? You know, it's not the spa we talked about. So in inpatient, you have a lot of longer treatment sessions. Um, you have individual ones with a counselor. Uh, and, and then you also do group because part of recovery is talking to other people in recovery. That's that's the number one intervention. That's what's made AA so successful because nobody's going to help you more than the people around you that are going through the same shit. That's, that's simply the case, you know, and a lot of people in treatment or people that come to that are like people haters, right? Oh, I hate other people. Oh, fuck them. And, but it can't be like that. Like that's, that's just the answer to it. And so a lot of it's group and somebody's going to tell you what's up, right? In, in, in inpatient, you lie to yourself so much and there's other people there that are lying to themselves and not feeling very good and they get tired of hearing it. And that those call outs are sometimes very helpful, but we don't want to always think about, um, you know, the intervention style because it's about that motivational interviewing and encouraging people to get to their own conclusions. But it's really helpful to have peer a peer kind of call you out sometimes of like, hey, no, you need to take accountability or my did that my dad did that to me and that's why I feel like shit. So thanks, man. And then it's like, whoa. Um, so those kinds of things can happen in group. You can come out with best friends you never knew you'd have, or you know, a different perspective. And then it gets to that point where you've you've come out of the institution. So that person we talked about, they had the problem, they went. Um, and, and just another thing about Vancouver is that we do have a parenting and pregnant women program here too. That is a good program that they really try um, to get you into pretty quickly. And I've known some people that have worked for the program and it's awesome. Um, so that that's something that's good for here in town and in Vancouver. Sorry, I don't, I keep wanting to follow this false patient we have and the track they're going on. Um, but we do have, I think that we also do that parenting pregnant women plan is, for the Portland area too. So we're kind of a, 
a mecca, so to speak. Um, and I personally think we have better treatment centers than in Portland because we would have a lot of clients um, where I was centered at in Vancouver. We would have a lot of them coming from Portland just because some of them there suck. Um, so that's just a, a standpoint on that. So this hypothetical person, they've come out of inpatient, they have a plan. And usually you don't just come out of inpatient and you're done. You need to do outpatient. And that's because you won't have the skills that you need to be successful out in the world. You just have them in that institution. You're still a baby and you're going through something called post-acute withdrawal syndrome, which it's your brain is healing, but it's lacking dopamine. And so a lot of times people will have these feelings. They'll be clumsy. They'll, they'll feel like hotheads. And they're like, wow, you know, 30 days have passed. Why am I still a fuck up? And it's because of pause. And so I'm going to share this finally. I've been promising this incredible pause video. So this is uh, an excerpt from a video that I used to show in treatment groups about pause. So we're just going to watch the first part to kind of explain what it is, if that's cool. When we see patients for inpatient rehabilitation services because they are in active addiction and have a substance use disorder, they go through the detox phase of treatment and really what is the acute phase of treatment. I like to say that rehab is an acute response to a chronic disease. So when they finish their rehabilitation treatment inpatient and then leave the rehab facility, they're now in the post-acute phase. This is where things get serious. This is where recovery really starts, and this is where the work really starts. Actually, it's the brain in and of itself, the damage that's been done to it is trying to repair itself, and that's post-acute. That means it's coming after the time you went through actual detox. So this is gonna last anywhere from, could last to six months, it could last up to 24 months. Because the brain doesn't release dopamine um, the way a normal person does. That's where our issue is, it's right in the midbrain. So um, somebody feels good about something, and you have something that made you feel good, it doesn't necessarily have the same effect on me. So that's where my um, deficiency is, and that's where it lies. So we know how to make our brain get those excitotoxins and to release that dopamine, and that's why we go back to what we do, because any type of using drugs, alcohol, whatever it is, gives you that feeling, um, and so it releases that, um, those endorphin rush from the brain. So it gives you that sense of well-being, I feel good, I can do anything kind of thing. And when you're in inpatient treatment, you're in a, a protected environment. Um, and it, they talk about a pink cloud. When you come out of there, it's kind of like, oh, everything's all great and nothing's going to bother me. I'm 10 foot tall and bulletproof. And then when you get home, then those issues that have been kind of cultivated prior to my entrance into treatment, they're right in my face again. And so that's when things start to change. And that's when you start finding um, you really are sensitive to post-acute withdrawal at that time because you're sensitive to stress. You can't sleep. You have emotional upheavals. It's up or down or you don't feel at all. Okay, so and, and the reason that I wanted to share that is because not a lot of people know about pause. So usually people think it's over after 30 days and People give up because of pause. They have a bad day. They think it's never going to work for them. They think it's all bullshit and they give up. Um, and so it's really important to be aware of that. And it's important for us as a society, I think, to be aware of pause. So we have this idea, oh, we just want to stuff people into stuff people into the cattle car and take them to treatment and load them up. And then, oh, they do their 30 days. They're out. No, they're still healing. And part of that healing process is having access to resources, having something to do and having a super strong routine. And, and that goes back to hopefully what we're learning in inpatient, what we have a plan for when we get out and that's gonna include that routine. It's gonna include sleep, a good sleep schedule, a quality sleep schedule and eating properly and eating in a way that, um, you know, because people, when you're going, you have to eat kind of for your recovery. So you have to eat in terms of like, they call it never hungry, never full because fullness and being hungry causes hormone explosions. That's a wonderful word, hormone explosions or phrase or whatever. Um, but that's a, a bad thing in pause because you're having those anyway. 
you're up and down. And so when you're dealing with something like hunger or fullness, when your body's already trying to relearn those cues because they've been hijacked by the reward system and the, and the drug you were using, um, it can be really bad if you don't have a routine down. So you need to have a good sleep routine, good eating routine, eating good foods, and that can speed up the healing from pause. So at this point, oh God, pause. So 30 days and now what, up to two years, they're saying that I'm going to be feeling weird. No, you don't have to sit in it like that. And that's what being active in recovery means is that you're working on those things. You're working on developing new skills, wearing down new roads in your brain, changing the structure of your brain. Um, so that can speed along that process. And also, can you like, are, are there things that you can do to raise those dopamine levels as well? Like uh, exercise, I would guess, uh, you know. Yes, that and that's and... what you want to do. That is what treatment is. So okay. when we take something away, we have to replace it or you're just going to go without. You, and you don't deserve that. You were using for a reason. There was something going on, you know, it didn't just happen in a vacuum. And so if you just take that thing away, then that's known as like a dry drunk or white knuckling because you're so miserable, you know, that you've just taken away the one thing that you had or what you were addicted to and it's gone now. You have to replace it. And so for every reason that you could think of that you want to use, come up with an alternate activity. And you, that's also knowing your triggers. So we talk about this acronym. This is a fun one. HALT. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Those are basic triggers for most of us. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. And so when we st think about a relapse plan, we want to hit those first. Well, what am I going to do when I'm hungry? It's going to happen. You're going to get hungry. Don't not have a plan. And go, oh, God, I'm looking hungry. That's what addicts do. We just react. We need to, when we're in recovery, we're proactive. Pack a snack, asshole. That's being proactive. You know, <laughs> you're not hungry. Angry. This is the heart of, for personally, oh my goodness, right? And and that's part of what, what therapy is for and, and that other part of what am I taking care of mentally? Did I use to control my anger? Did I live did I live with my anger through my substance use? Is that how I expressed my anger? And so that's something you need to unpack. You need to do the work, work on calming yourself, knowing your body. Um, and, and then they're okay. So we have that. And then the lonely, that's the isolation part. You need to have people to talk to because you're going to want to isolate. You're not going to want to be around anybody. You're going to be feeling low. That's why you need to talk to somebody who's going through the same thing or who has, um, you don't have to get a sponsor and do the 12 steps, but it really helps people. It helps people to have a sponsor and, uh, the 12 steps are great. Like they're really just about improving yourself. If you just took the 12 steps and applied them to any mental health issue you were having or anything you wanted to change about yourself or just improve your life and your role in other people's lives, like do the freaking 12 steps. Oh my God. Um, so that those are just some of the things that we would talk about. Oh, for post-acute withdrawal syndrome. Yes. Um, so we're trying to bust that that myth there uh, that that you're just going to fail if you're not fine after 30 days. In fact, you shouldn't be like that would be weird. You know, everybody goes through pause. And it's funny, too, because a pause symptom could be you being clumsy because maybe you've used so long that your body's equilibrium is you drunk, like Jackie Chan, drunken master, like you're a drunken master. And so you're kind of learning how to walk again. Uh, so people will notice that uh, it kind of goes back to like, if you ever done like physical therapy, they talk sometimes about biofeedback, like close one of your eyes and then use this other part of your body and, and see how it changes. Your brain's just doing that by itself during pause. And, and so that's kind of some things to consider. Um, or getting like pissed, like zero to 60. Uh, one of the reasons that we ask that people start to label, find feeling words or identify their emotions in treatment is because you have a shorter range of emotions and you can't control them. And, and so once we start identifying them, you know, we have this umbrella of angry, sad, or high, not high, 
drunk, not drunk. And so once we're a sober person, we have to go, well, am I angry right now? Am I just hungry? Am I frustrated? You know, and and so there's like this knowing of self that needs to happen um, that needs to get unpacked in in therapy, too. OK, so there was lonely cover and then tired um, sleep. Sleep is your superpower. That's like that TED talk. There's that sleep is your superpower guy. He's on everything. His name's Matt Walker and he's sleep is simply your superpower. And he's very right, but he's kind of obnoxious, but we could put that in the show notes too, um, because it's true. You do most of your healing during sleep. Um, and that's what sucks is that when you're going through withdrawal, a lot of times it affects your sleep patterns. The best way to do that once again, goes back to routine. Make sure you're going to bed at the same time every night, getting up at the same time and really give a fuck about sleep hygiene, which doesn't mean going to bed clean. It means, you know, dimming the lights before bed and doing some relaxing things before bed and not scrolling on your phone. Um, it's actually putting an effort to do some healthy sleep. So those are some things that could speed along pause, but it's really just going to be a process too. And, uh, and it kind of, it's weird because it's kind of boring and people don't expect that either. Uh, and a lot of times people will tell you like going through treatment, it's like the most boring, exciting thing ever um, because you're always bored and you're always like, oh, but you find out who you are and you find out what you really want to do and new hobbies and all kinds of stuff. Like it can be like a very rewarding time. So 